0: Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology, with me, Tjasa Zaitz. Healthcare is one of the rare industries in which oftentimes by requesting a service, the work hardly begins for the patient. Especially in complex cases, Care is rarely seamless. Tests are done, drugs are prescribed, and if all goes well, the problem is resolved. But oftentimes, months can pass before the right drug and dose is found. Antidepressants are a good example of this problem, they are often still prescribed on a trial and error basis, with changes made if the initial regimen proves ineffective. But what if there was a better way to prescribing? This is where pharmacogenomic testing comes into play. By analyzing genetic variations that influence drug metabolism, efficacy and potential adverse drug reactions, pharmacogenomic tests can provide valuable insights for personalized treatment decisions. However, despite its potential, implementing pharmacogenomic testing is more complex than it may seem. In this discussion, you will hear from Adriana Kekic, pharmacogenomics clinical specialist at the Mayo Clinic in the US. We discussed the current state of pharmacogenomics, the optimal timing for individuals to undergo a pharmacogenomic test to get the right drug and the right dose based on their metabolism, why is pharmacogenomics not used more frequently, and further developments expected in the field. Enjoy the discussion, and if you haven't yet, do check out our newsletter, you can find it at fodh.substack.com, that's fodh.substack.com. Additionally, if you will enjoy this show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. Now let's dive in today's discussion. Adriana, welcome to Faces of Digital Health. I'm really happy that you are here so we can discuss how pharmacogenomics is progressing, how far it is already in the clinical practice, what exactly is pharmacogenomics in the first place, and how are you implementing and using it at the Mayo Clinic. So maybe the best way to start would be to just explain a little bit about the basics. So what is pharmacogenomics and how broadly does it span when we talk about the metabolism of drugs?
1: Thank you so much for the invite, Yasha. such a joy and pleasure to be with you talking about my favorite subject, which is pharmacogenomics. I'm often asked, what exactly is this pharmacogenomics or PGX? So the straightforward answer would be pharmacogenomics is a science that has been around for a few decades, actually that studies how genetics or your heritage, person's heritage affects the way that they respond to medications. And this typically, like you already pointed out, has to do with the genes that give instructions to make these proteins or enzymes, we usually refer to them, that have to do with either drug metabolism, drug transport, or drug, targets or those drug receptors. So in other words, we know that mutations to these genes or really these enzymes can affect how a person responds to medications, not just in terms of how they metabolize them, but really how they respond to them. So some people may have favorable response, like they tolerate it well, they respond to medication well. And some individuals have unfavorable response where they have maybe side effects, significant side effects to medications or medications may not work well for them. You asked me, how broad is pharmacogenomics used in current practice? I would say this is a very important question. And the answer to that question is going to be, it depends. (laughs) It depends Where or what are we referring to? So what I can say is pharmacogenomics right now is used in clinical practice, and I'm really maybe referring more to here in the United States what I see, but I know that this certainly is the case in many European countries and also globally as well. So where is it used? When you look at, let's say here in the United States, when you look at the FDA drug labels, you can see that a number of medications have actually pharmacogenomic biomarkers in their drug labels. And when you look at the, what medications are these, are the drug classes or specialty areas, number one, it's oncology drugs, Number two, psychotropic medications. So this can be antidepressants, anti-seizure medications, maybe pain medications, and so on. So this is really in parallel or reflective of what we are seeing in clinical practice. Meaning, like in my practice, for example, we get a lot of referrals from say, neurology, or maybe GI as well. Sometimes infectious disease physicians will refer their patients for pharmacogenomic testing. We certainly see a lot of referrals from family medicine, internal medicine. Why? Because individuals from those areas will take number of different medications that can be affected by pharmacogenomic biomarkers. So in other words, it's an eclectic list And it's a broad scope, oncology, transplant, cardiology, and so on.
0: What's the main reason that the findings that are clear already today are not used more broadly? So is it the price? So how much does pharmacogenomic testing cost, for example, in the U.S.? Is it the fact that we maybe still do not know enough about this to be able to apply it to every single patient? So where do you see the biggest barriers to the broader use of pharmacogenomic testing before prescribing medications?
1: So there are several questions that you just asked me right now. So let me maybe dissect this a little bit. So the cost of testing is certainly a barrier. Over the years that I have been doing pharmacogenomic Implementation and application, I am seeing positive movement in this way. And let me just explain what I mean with that. So most of the pharmacogenomic testing that we use in clinical practice are combinatory panels it used to be years ago that we would test one or two genes, like, for example, CYP2D6 or CYP2C19. These refer to cytochrome P450 enzymes, 2D6 and 2C19. And the reasons were that they tend to be really polymorphic genes, meaning if you look at the room of 100 of us, at least about half of us are going to have mutations to those genes. So, it would be important to know if you have a mutation on something like this or not, because these these genes or enzymes are actually involved in metabolism of many drugs, many drugs. So, we moved away from the single gene panels to now these combinatory panels. And the cost depends, but typically what I see is maybe a couple of hundred dollars, three or four hundred dollars for the panel that has maybe a dozen or 20 or 30 different genes. And it's an eclectic list of genes. So it can be drug metabolizing enzymes, drug targets, drug transporters, maybe HLA genes, that help us distinguish self from non-self that are involved in drug hypersensitivity reactions. The cause, actually, why I say this is a po- what I'm seeing is a positive movement or movement in the right direction is because as the number of genes included on these panel rises up, so we have more and more genes included, for which we actually have some solid evidence behind, meaning guidelines to support them, we are seeing also at the same time drop in terms of the cost of these panels. So patients are quite in tune with what has been going on. And as a matter of fact, patients or customers and consumers, healthcare consumers, are driving this conversation to say, should I have this genetic testing done, considering that maybe I can even afford it now as opposed to years ago. In addition to that, I'm also seeing, Tiasha, more insurance companies willing to pay and reimburse for this testing, which also then drives this at the point of care. That still remains a barrier. So the cost itself and reimbursement as well. There is a difference between Medicare versus the, the private payers and so on. The second big thing, of course, is genetic literacy still remains low, both in terms of healthcare providers and the greater community. The third thing would be we need these supportive tools for those of us who really bring this to the clinical practice what are the supportive tools clinical decision support i know a lot of institutions and in community pharmacy settings as well are looking how to build effectively build these clinical decision supports support systems that will enable effective and less disruptive to workflow integration of pharmacogenomic test results at the point of care. And so what that means is, like, for example, when I meet with a patient and the results come back, the results, actually for our institution at least, are automatically embedded in electronic health records where clinical decision support is built that either enables a physician or a prescriber to say, if I'm prescribing something, I may actually be alerted that this patient had genetic testing results. And there are some significant findings around drugs for which we have guidance Genotype based guidance that they may be alerted in a way that actually enables a pre- personalized, if you will, prescribing of those medications. So these are just some of the factors, cost or reimbursement, genetic literacy remaining low, and these clinical integrative support tools that continue to be, that continue to evolve.
0: Mm-hmm. I think the basic discussions when it comes to pharmacogenomics center around whether or not a person is a slow or a fast metabolizer of a specific drug. So if you metabolize a specific drug more slowly, you might need a lower dose, and it's going to be effective compared to if you're a fast metabolizer, then you might need higher doses. So what I'm wondering here is, how exactly is the pharmacogenomics field developing? Do you just test for a new drug? What's the relationship to the gene in terms of pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics? Or is it done in a different manner? So, when a drug is identified as connected to a specific gene, do like how are the guidelines then developed to give the clinician very specific instructions? So, do are pharmacogenomics instructions strictly or very closely related to a specific dosing or not? Or is it just a general understanding this is a fast or slow metabolizer adapt accordingly?
1: Yeah, we can explore this in different ways. But let's start maybe from the very beginning. What we have been doing all these years and what we continue to do, which are, we start basically with these drug gene pairs, like you mentioned. So the more studied drug gene pairs have to do with genes related to pharmacokinetics. And so pharmacokinetics is essentially what body does to the drug, how the kind of drug moves through the body. Think about maybe absorption, distribution, metabolism, elimination. So when I say pharmacokinetics, I usually think about these drug metabolizing enzymes, like CYP enzymes. You may have heard about those, like CYP that I mentioned, 2C19, CYP2D6, and so on. Also some glucuronidation enzymes, like UGTG, UGT family of genes are really important to these psychotropic drugs, pain medications, maybe some antidepressants or benzodiazepines and so on, these psychotropic drugs. So how it's done and has been done traditionally is you will have all of this evidence that kind of pulls in PharmGKB is our encyclopedic site where a lot of us go to to say, where is the evidence coming from? What are these studies like? Is this anecdotal? Maybe case review or case reports, or maybe these are cohort studies or even randomized control trials that we're getting this evidence and data from. So this evidence or data comes in and is then interpreted, annotated, interpreted to say, what does this drug gene pair really say? What have we observed? In other words, if you have somebody who is, let's say, poor metabolizer or slow metabolizer, like you mentioned, and maybe it's a medication like paroxetine, which is an antidepressant, what are we actually seeing? Are individuals who are poor metabolizers poor metabolizers indeed at increased risk of drug accumulation, and therefore at increased risk of side effects. And that's what we're seeing a lot of times with these drug gene pairs. So based on this, and based on strength of evidence, we have different levels of evidence, like level one is the highest level of evidence related to these pharmacokinetic, usually pharmacogenetic studies, where we will say, this level one evidence or maybe level 2A or 2B evidence is so strong in terms of association or correlation in some cases that we will have genotype-based guidelines built around them. And so usually you will hear about things here in the United States, something called CPIC, clinical pharmacogenomic implementation consortium guidelines, or maybe in Europe, it will be something of a Dutch pharmacogenetic working group that will build these guidelines. And so how is this actually developing? We no longer just consider these drug gene pairs. In other words, pharmacogenomics is evolving from pharmacogenetics, influence of one gene onto a drug, typically pharmacokinetic gene onto a drug, to pharmacogenomics, where we integrate other genes. So it can be, if we're talking about antidepressants, perhaps, it can be, we look at complex list of genes or interplay between them. So we look at pharmacokinetic genes like SIP enzymes, then we look at maybe serotonin transporter like SLC6A4, along with serotonin receptors like HTR2A, 2C, and so on, especially 2A when it comes to antidepressants, for example. So it's moving from pharmacogenetics to pharmacogenomics. And really, where a lot of us are putting a lot of working efforts in and clinical questions in is really this multi-omics algorithm world that is being built right now where we say we know genetics plays role, but this is only one part of the equation. We need to look at other, integrate other elements of self like epigenetic factors, microbiome, metabolomics, proteomics, and all of these kind of scalable biomarkers that can help us build an algorithm to say for Tiasha or for Adriana, this is how they present, this is who they are as an individual. So, you know, is this really the best therapy and the best dose for them based on kind of those algorithmic, algorithmic, rather, outputs? Mm -hmm.
0: I love how basically you started developing the whole complexity around this topic, because I guess it's easy to just start small and say, okay, this drug has some biomarkers that we can take into account when you try to dose a specific drug. Then you try to look at the broader picture of how genes correlate to one another and how they impact one another. And then... You know, as it's normal in in therapy, especially with older patients, you've got patients that actually take multiple drugs. So how much do we actually already know about the polypharmacy and what happens when you have drugs that have some biomarkers, but then there's so many that it's hard to determine where the final impact on the patient is coming from?
1: This is definitely more of an art than it is a science in many ways, precise science, I should say. The science has already been there. And I always semi-jokingly say that pharmacogenomics is pharmacology on steroids, because it gives you a really more precise insight into what's going on for that individual internally. We can assume, based on these principles, of pharmacology that you mentioned, like these drug interaction or drug age interaction or drug disease interaction. That We have been doing that for many years and decades. What pharmacogenomics really allows us to do is take a more Targeted peak into you as an individual to say, what does your baseline look like? We know your age, we know your weight, we know your organ function, we know that you're taking multiple medications that can interfere or interact with each other. Let's then add now this baseline level of your genetics. What does your genetic actually dictate? You know, in other words, you can be a normal metabolizer on these like. We have been talking about CYP enzymes, drug metabolizing enzymes. You can be a normal CYP2D6 metabolizer. I actually just met met with a patient this morning, normal CYP2D6 metabolizer, yet that patient is taking bupropion, an antidepressant, that is a really strong inhibitor. It blocks the CYP2D6 pathway. So that individual is no longer really a normal CYP2D6 metabolizer. That individual became almost really a poor CYP2D6 metabolizer. So these drug interactions are really important regardless of age. But then when you add that complexity of either pregnancy, young age, advanced age, where you know that the organ function changes through life, and when we enter those years 60 and beyond, we know that function is can be greatly impacted. So that's why I'm saying it's more of an art than it is a science. We do have these computer systems and algorithms that you can plug on, plug in all of that information in, and say, we think this is the drug or the dose that you really need to be on or perhaps can be safely on. But I will tell you from my clinical experience, there are nuances there. And you know what we are seeing even recently with COVID. We know that we have some individuals, regardless of the age, but especially over the age of 60 as well, that they suffer from long COVID. So we are seeing some protein expression that's changed that can really greatly affect what is happening with their drug experience. They could have tolerated maybe medications years back. But right now, they're having really difficult time tolerating some medications. So this is more of that drug-disease, maybe, interaction, more so than drug interaction or polypharmacy that you mentioned. What I want to say is polypharmacy is important, but then you're adding these other complexity and layers of complexity based on an individual that is also important.
0: I find it fascinating that we know anything at all based on the levels of complexity. And it gives you a little bit of a different perspective on why doctors would sometimes give you a drug and say, let's try and see what's going to happen. So, yeah. What kind of clinical decision support systems can you then use to help you with counseling on pharmacogenetics and pharmacogenomics, given how much knowledge is still missing in a way?
1: pharmacists especially as more of healthcare providers who are extensively trained in pharmacology. So we have been using these pharmacology tools, clinical decision support, if you will, tools, which we start from the basis or basics. And that is first of all, drug drug interactions. So drug interactions that has been working in the background for all of these years, all of these decades. Now the next tool off would be these drug gene interactions. So there are clinical decision support built around that. We also have internal, and I know a lot of institutions do as well. Um, here at the Mayo Clinic, we have something called Ask Mayo Expert, where we have number of drug gene pairs around which we have clinical decision support or decision trees built around that can help physicians, pharmacists, providers, or prescribers, really inform them if maybe pharmacogenomic testing would be helpful, or if they already have results, how to interpret those results related to those specific drug gene pairs. As you said, this is only a handful, right, in a scope of, big scope of many drugs that we have on the market. The question really would be, how do you navigate through this world where you have not only complexity of how individual shows up, but also in this world where we don't have black on white guidance. A lot of the drugs that we have biomarkers for, there's really no specific guidance to say either avoid or not to avoid. It's let's use the clinical judgment, which we have been, obviously using all of these years, let's use the clinical judgment to say, if I prescribe this medication, maybe we want to monitor more closely for X, Y, and Z. If the patient has that, and if they do, maybe we change the medication. So it is still, as I said, more of an art than it is a science. And I, you asked me about the clinical decision support. It just simply depends on what are we looking for. Is it maybe drug interaction or drug gene interaction or something maybe entirely else.
0: I think we managed to illustrate the complexity of the field. And so if I'm thinking how we can maybe simplify it a little bit, when does it make sense for a patient to even consider that he or she would suggest pharmacogenomic testing to a provider if the provider doesn't consider that himself or herself?
1: Yeah, that's actually a good point. Here is my kind of take on that. You can do pharmacogenomic testing at any point. And we I certainly see that in my practice as well, where I will have a patient call and say I want to do the pharmacogenomic testing because I had maybe a family member who had and actually I have this quite a bit. I had a family member or a friend who had it done. They had some results that were remarkable. I want to do the testing as well. My take on this is the following. You can have it done Preemptively. And as a matter of fact, if your insurance company pays for the testing, and I have to put a caveat here, a lot of insurance companies here in the United States will actually pay for pharmacogenomic testing that's a clinical grade versus exploratory testing. So, in other words, if the pharmacogenomic platform, the test, includes genes that are considered to be exploratory, like, for example, F2 and F5, factor 2 and factor 5 that are related to coagulopathies. Those are usually considered to be exploratory genes. A lot of times insurance companies will decline those. So in other words, if you have insurance company that pays for the testing, most patients are really keen on getting those testing results done. So that would be preemptive testing where you have not taken a medication, or maybe you're not taking any medications whatsoever. You just want to have those results available when you're a physician and you need to make a decision if you need to start a medication or not. So this can be quite helpful. Most of the time, Tiasha, what I see in a clinical practice is a patient has already taken a medication, maybe one, two, three, four, five, and they have had unfavorable experience and then either a patient or a physician oftentimes will say, let's do the pharmacogenomic testing. I do want to point out that a few years ago, we have actually put together a pharmacogenomic online certification course really to cater to our physicians, prescriber, pharmacists, healthcare professionals really here at our institution to increase that genetic literacy and engage in these conversations with, with patients to say, is it meaningful to do the testing or not? And if we're talking about the meaningful, I usually will say you have to consider that not all medications have pharmacogenomic or genotype-based guidance. And if you're really looking for that, then I can maybe point you out to 20 or 30 or 40 medications that for which we, and I don't mean here at the institution, but I mean in medical community, have very firm guidance on
0: and given that you mentioned the challenge with the literacy and the understanding of the field, what is the general state of pharmacogenomics counselors in the U.S.? Does every hospital system have them? Because even if a patient gets the tests, does he get in contact with someone that's actually going to know what to do with that?
1: This has definitely been th- that part of the challenge that you asked me about earlier. What I see not only from my practice, but also other practices in the United States is that pharmacogenomic implementation has been a team effort. And usually those successfully implemented really have leveraged their multi-team, multi-member teams. That's, primarily includes having like a provider champion, but also having pharmacists who are trained in pharmacology. And therefore, most pharmacy school nowadays will provide some pharmacogenomic baseline, at least pharmacogenomic education, recognizing what I just said earlier, that pharmacogenomics is really pharmacology on steroids. These genes encode for proteins that have something to do with drugs, therefore pharmacology. So they have been leveraging pharmacists for that, recognizing that. I know, and I do as well, collaborate closely with clinical genomics department or genomic counselors. However, I again have to emphasize, because a lot of this has to do with pharmacology and drugs, they usually refer those patients back to us because it has to do with the drug therapy. And so that is what I'm seeing, and that is actually the opportunity that I see in terms of continuing to push on for education, not only for pharmacists or physicians, but really for our genetic counselor colleagues to allow for this multi-team approach when it comes to leveraging pharmacogenomic results, but also implementing it across not only institutions, but in the community as well.
0: And how many pharmacists are interested in this field what do you observe in that sense
1: yeah so this has been a hot topic because i'm definitely seeing more engagement from pharmacy communities pharmacy organizations pharmacy educational activities, pharmacy schools. I see it in just increasing number of webinars, educational activities, continuing education offerings and conferences and certifications and so on. So there are several ways that you can get certified as a pharmacist and also as a healthcare provider in in pharmacogenomics as well. If I'm comparing this to about 10 years ago to now, the numbers are so exponentially increased in terms
0: of the interest. Okay. And does that also impact the way that basically the field is advancing? Because one thing that I was just listening to a panel discussion around clinical trials and should pharmacogenomics be included in clinical trials. And the interesting thing to me was that basically the premise there was, should we include the current knowledge that we have around pharmacogenomics to test patients first and see basically how that impacts the new drug that we might want to test. But before listening to this panel discussion, I actually expected that the whole point would be that genomics genetics should be included in clinical trials. So we help advance the pharmacogenomics field and learn more about the existing biomarkers and potentially detect new ones. So maybe a few thoughts on that, and maybe you can illustrate that on the example of cancer treatments that are very commonly tied closely to the genetic picture of the patient, especially new expensive medications that are appropriate for a very specific population of patients?
1: The short answer would be yes. It is clinically meaningful, honestly, to have pharmacogenomic biomarkers tested in clinical trials, Why? We simply want to understand phenotypes of patients better, not just based on their age, disease state, or subcategories of different diseases or disease that they have. And I'll give you an example. I keep going back to psychotropics. My niche is psychopharmacology, so I tend to navigate more there. But let's say you have a condition like schizophrenia or maybe ADHD or maybe major depressive disorder. It's a label. It's a clinical diagnosis, if you will. But if you look at the cohort of individuals who have that diagnosis, there is heterogeneity. There are different ways that people with the same diagnosis actually can present. They may have different, slightly different symptoms where some have more of this and others have more of that. And so... When I think about maybe even newer medication or drug targets that we're exploring in this psychotropic category, let's say schizophrenia with antipsychotic medications, or maybe some newer pathways related to, let's say, glutaminergic or gabinergic pathways, we have potentially some new drugs that we're uncovering or discovering based on actually assessments, genetic assessments of those individuals, meaning the drug targets that I mentioned. We talk about drug metabolizing enzymes, but it's actually these drug transporter and drug targets that are very interesting because you could have some mutations to those drug targets that really can affect signatures that you see within the body and how a person can maybe present with a certain condition or subtype of that condition. This ties into what you asked me also with oncology, in a way that oncology is complex because not only you have these germline mutations that we have been talking about, inherited mutations, but you also have mutations to tumors or cancer cells, which are considered to be somatic mutations both need to be looked at. And of course, both need to be looked at in clinical trials as well, because you want to know, first of all, not just genetically, heritage-wise, can you metabolize something or not? But as far as your cancer, what sort of mutation do those cancers contain that drugs X, Y, and Z could be of benefit or not benefit off. So the long answer that I'm giving you here is this is going to be a paramount, the way that I see it. This is going to be critical to involve in ongoing clinical trials. This is only the tip of the iceberg, I feel like, that we are scratching and we have been scratching at the surface. And as these AI-based technology, machine learning, deep learning algorithm continue to evolve, we will see more, Repres, precise representation of complexities that patients actually have, that we as individuals actually have. <laughs>
0: You mentioned a few times already different mental health-related disorders. So can we stop there a little bit? Pharmacogenomics in the mental health space. Yeah, I think it's a good limit for us (laughs) because we have been spreading out in terms of all the challenges related to pharmacogenomics. But if we just look at mental health, what would be your assessment of mental health treatments in relation to drug development, and uh, pharmacogenomics?
1: I always look for silver lining in things. So where are we right now? Or where have we been right now? We have been on two diverging paths. One is we have medications like antidepressants, anxiolytics, antipsychotics, and so on, mood stabilizers, and so on, that we have used over decades now over years now, to treat mental health disorders or illnesses, but let's say. We know that sometimes these medications can be life-saving, can be quite helpful, can help with symptoms, symptomatic relief, and so on. The second part is we still don't fully understand what's happening biologically. or And I don't want to be uh, overly... Reductionist in this, meaning reduce it to something to like basic building blocks. But if we think about the biochemistry, even we still don't fully understand what's happening with these conditions. What I'm so excited about, what I'm so enthusiastic about when it comes to pharmacogenomics in these other emerging fields within neurobiology of these conditions is Understanding these mutations can help us better understand the pathology of these diseases or illnesses. And if we can actually understand and categorize that better, as opposed to just using a label, the DSM-5 label that we currently have, Perhaps we would have better treatments or we will have better treatments, drugs and other complementary treatments. So that is what I'm really excited about. Right now in pharmacogenomics world, we're really focused on pharmacokinetic studies. I think what I'm excited about that I'm seeing is these complex pharmacodynamic studies that can help us better understand serotonin receptors. We would see that now with emergence of even psilocybin therapy, which tend to be years ago, we would not have had this conversation that we're having right now to say we're using psilocybin. But when you think about it, this has to do with serotonin network work, at least that's what we think, serotonin receptors. So perhaps understanding all of this better can help us determine what is the basis of all of this, what changes, and what perhaps drug targets could be of significance in years to come.
0: How much progress do you see in the drug development for basically mental health disorders. It just got me thinking how basically the challenge with these drugs is that they can have severe negative side effects that need to be taken into account. So if you can tailor them to the the uh, drug side effects can be avoided, then that's obviously very beneficial. But I'm not aware of how is this whole knowledge impacting the pharma industry and its interest to develop new drugs.
1: Yeah. So first part of your question was, what am I seeing in terms of improvements or movements on that? The movements have been conservative. And that's my take. It may not really be the reality of especially R&D that's happening right now. So what I do see is some positive movements, like we're seeing some newer medications, newer therapies when let's think about maybe Parkinson's disease or even Alzheimer's disease, which is a huge point of controversy still even now. But we are mechanistically, I feel like, understanding these disorders or conditions better than we did, say, 20 or 30 or more years ago. So that's a positive movement. I feel like that's actually a positive movement in terms of the down down effect of that being maybe better designed drugs or better matched drugs for those individuals.
0: So now you described how much more do we know about the pathways and what's happening in the body and in the brain when it comes to mental health disorders. How much interest is that there from the pharma industry to develop new drugs because of the how problematic these drugs can be?
1: yeah, I cannot really give you an answer or comment on the pharma. that would be the question for them. I do have obviously colleagues who work in pharma, so I know just from our my offline conversations friendly conversations that I have with them, there is so much interest in this field, especially neuropsychiatry, mental health disorders, and psychopharmacology. And psychopharmacology is a really broad field, Tiasha. It can be encompassing anything from these conditions that we talked about, including like, neuro, like Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, neurodevelopmental disorders, maybe pain disorders especially, and so on. Even when you think about like opioid crisis and the difficulties that we have had with opioid use, abuse, and so on, we know that we see some mutations that perhaps could play a role. I certainly see it in the clinic, individuals who have altered opioid receptors and they'll say, I just don't get this full pain relief from opioids. And I I feel bad because maybe sometimes my physicians are trying to work with me and there's still stigma associated with all of this. And we have to be careful really to personalize those therapies. And so I see that. And because of what I'm seeing there, I'm positive, I'm hopeful that more in-depth assessment and analysis will be done that will lead maybe to, to better drug targets and really better drug therapies. And we haven't even scratched the surface as far as the gene therapies, which is a whole other part of the whole field of pharmacogenomics, which kind of targets more of those hereditary mutations, at least at this point right now.
0: How do you see the role of technology in this whole story? So if we think of everything that would need to be combined in an ideal world, what would drive progress further? You know, if we look at genomic and genetic testing, it's advancing, sequencing is getting increasingly affordable. Then you've got in silico testing, uh, digital twins, AI, so more data better options to process that data, if you would just try to think about what's the most optimistic, but still relatively realistic scenario, given everything that we have, what would you combine together to advance the field?
1: yeah so my take on this is the following and I know this has been a hot topic over the months and in even the couple of years as well, especially with a i is a i going to replace physicians and healthcare professionals and so on. Obviously, neither one of us have a crystal ball, so it would be very responsible of me to say I know what's going to be happening because I don't know. How I'm envisioning this is based on what I'm using in a clinical practice right now and how I'm actually leveraging some of this as a clinician researcher myself. And that is I'm super enthused about these emerging tools and capacity that is behind that. We quite literally have now institution that has implemented quantum computer as a way of a new tool that will be leveraged hopefully in now time to come and maybe carving a path or paths for collaboration and many of us who will obviously be interested in pursuing the same path or following the same path or are on the same path already as it is. So I see technology, these AI-based tools, as a huge enabler of me as a clinician being able to do my job more effectively, more precisely and more personalize it to individual that I'm seeing in the clinic, individual that I'm hoping to help. So the way that I see this is similar to what we're doing right now, where we're integrating these big data sets. My hope is that the data is more representative of an overall population, the huge global population that we have, as opposed to being predominantly Caucasian, 80 plus percent of overall data including genetic data actually, is still that, but we're seeing some positive movements in that direction as well. So more representative of a global population, or at least if you're functioning within a certain area, representative of that area so you can treat those individuals really precisely and effectively. So we're already doing a lot of that. So integrating these huge data sets that are representative, there is more transparency in terms of this de-identified data pools that you can play with together. I know our institution has ways how you can collaborate and play together to figure out maybe treatment algorithms and different things. I do think that will allow for us to do what, you know, all of us who have gone into healthcare field and field of medicine, and I include pharmacy within that field of medicine. Whenever I walk hallways of this institution, Tyasha, there's a wonderful, there are a few walls that have the same thing. And that is the needs of the patients come first. And I always think about what can I be doing with all of this technology that we have to meet the needs of those individuals who come to see us for hope of healing. And with AI or these technology-based tools, I really do think this will enable us really to be healers the way that we are trained to be with this emotional intelligence that, that equips us to connect with individuals and find ways to troubleshoot these problems that they may have and that they are looking for ways to get healing from them.
0: You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast, subscribe to the show, or follow us on LinkedIn. Additionally, check out our newsletter. You can find it at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. Stay tuned.